This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is the Ultimate Classic Rock Podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe on your podcast app so that you don't miss a single episode. They come out each Monday, and as always, they feature big-name rock stars that found fame in the 60s, 70s, or 80s. If you're a new listener, check back through the catalogue. There's an awful lot of interviews for you to enjoy with the stars telling their stories from throughout their careers. Now, today, though, it's something a little bit different. Yes, we still have a big-name guest, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, but it's someone we've had on the podcast a couple of times already. A man who, along with Mark Knopfler, was the only other ever-present member of Dire Straits, one of the biggest-selling bands of all time, with record sales of over 100 million. They spent 1,100 weeks on the UK album chart, which is the fifth most of all time. They won four Grammys, three Brit Awards, two MTV Video Awards, and blessed us with classic songs such as Sultans of Swing, Money for Nothing, and Romeo and Juliet, plus blockbuster albums like Brothers in Arms, Love Over Gold, and their self-titled debut. My guest today is, of course, the wonderful John Ilsley. But, as I've said, I've already spoken to John a couple of times. Go back and check out episode two and an episode called Side Two, My Life in Dire Straits, both with John telling his stories from his career. And while you're scrolling, if you are a big fan of Dire Straits, then I've also interviewed the group's original drummer, Pick Withers, and keyboard player Alan Clark as well. So plenty of Dire Straits material for you if you're a fan. Go back and give them a listen. Now, my reason for getting John on today was to launch a fun new series of the show called My Five Favourite. This is pretty much what it sounds like. I speak with these wonderful rock stars and we discuss their five favourite some things to do with music. And I'm delighted to say today's show features John Ilsley exclusively revealing his five favourite songs from Dire Straits. But it's not just a quick rundown. We hear about the stories behind his selections, the meanings behind them, the, the writing and the recording processes the changing dynamics in the band with members leaving and joining and what the songs each mean to John as well. I've also got a few other big-name guests recorded so far, revealing their five favourites too, so they will appear in coming weeks, along with so many other big-name classic rock stars. Honestly, I've been like an interviewing machine lately. I've got so many in the bag, so I'm really looking forward to you hearing them all. 
But back to John then, and it's a fascinating insight into what he thinks of the band's own back catalogue, something we don't often get to hear from these superstars. And before we chat about the songs, we get a little catch-up with him. We speak about Tina Turner, who, as we all know, sadly passed away recently, but John and the rest of Dire Straits worked with her on her smash hit song Private Dancer, so we hear about that, plus about his solo work as well. So lots to chat about indeed. Now, I hope you enjoy this show. It's something completely different. So if you do like it, please mention it to your friends or family, co-workers, you know the drill. Word of mouth always seems to be the best way to spread the news. Although if you do have social media, sharing links on there also helps as well. Thank you very much. Right, so here we go. Let's find out what Dire Straits legend John Ilsley rates as his five favourite Dire Straits songs of all time. Now, quickly before we start, I'd just like to touch on someone that we sadly lost uh, a couple of months ago, um, the legendary Tina Turner, wonderful performer, wonderful singer, wonderful lady, and someone that you actually worked with, wasn't it? Uh, indeed. Uh, yes, uh, she was a force to be reckoned with, that's for, for certain, not only when she was performing, but as I discovered when uh, uh, when we were recording, because we, we, we did... Uh, this the private dancer with her. Um, well, all of the band except for Mark actually, he was busy doing a soundtrack somewhere, and so the band got a chance to uh, to play with Tina. Um, and uh, yes, it was it was it was quite a moment because you know one's been in the recording studio many times, but not in the presence of somebody like Tina Turner when she decides to virtually give you a private. Um, concert singing this song with you while you are playing it together and it was like she was singing in front of 20,000 people it was quite an extraordinary performance so I think she got the vocal like in in two takes or something that was it um but it was lovely uh actually just you know being a being in her presence and playing a song which of course we all knew quite well because we'd rehearsed it ourselves with the possible intention of playing it on the road but it didn't seem to be appropriate suddenly for mark to be singing a, a song called private dancer and with the words as we know um a bit weird but anyway that's the story yeah and uh a great pleasure i've met her before because we did the the princess trust concerts uh on a, on a couple of occasions with the queen as we called her the queen the queen of rock yeah and what was the what was the aura like around her when she was just like in your presence well you know it's like a lot of people you meet who uh, have this uh, um this this fame if you like they they're so well known when you actually meet them and it happens on a number of occasions on the uh over the years, you, you find them to be pretty, um, I'm not going to use the word ordinary, but not kind of um, unusual, apart from the fact that they're very talented in what they do, and either as guitar players or writers. Um, they just have a particular gift. But when you're in conversation with people like that, generally speaking, it's it's like talking to, you know, chatting to you in a, in a sense. Uh uh they just they're just they're just other people yeah absolutely. simple as there are there are exceptions of people who don't give much away but uh, <laughs> they protect themselves which is understandable indeed and you talk there about um having worked in the studio with her and the force of nature and everything like that you did actually get to have a meal was it a curry i think you said that you got to spend the evening with 
Well, we, she, we had we had a takeaway curry brought in actually because okay. she wanted that. And uh, uh, personally, I'm not a great curry eater. I probably eat about three or four a year. But I think for Tina, it was a you know that's what she ate, and uh, so we just joined in, and it was very nice to sort of do a recording session. I think we were there for a few hours just after lunchtime for a few hours, and we finished early evening. So she said, "Do you guys want a curry?" And we said, "Yeah, sure, let's have a curry." Yeah. It's just like that. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. Yeah. Now, I've had the pleasure of chatting with you, John, many times over the years. And I think the last time we spoke was about 18 months ago. And it was uh, just after the release of your book, uh, My Life in Dire Straits. And uh, that one seemed to work fantastically well. And it was just before the release of your eighth studio album, Eight, as well. That came out a month or so after we spoke last. So um, let's talk about that. Are you happy with the the way the, the album was received and the, the, the results of it that came out? Well, this album actually has done, uh, you know, has attracted more attention, I think, than the others. It, um, partly because um, one of the songs on there, Long Way Back, uh, we did a video for it, and that seems to have attracted an awful lot of attention. I, I don't know what, the, on the last count, I mean, but seven million people have watched it or something, which for me is quite, you know, quite a lot. It's not up to the dire straight standard, but. Um, I think that makes makes a big difference these days. That sort of presence on these uh, these all these uh, uh, digital formats and such like, which of course we we're all starting to have to get used to. Uh, so that I think that's helped a lot. Um, I was funny enough. I was, I was just about to make a phone call before I remembered we had to talk, and I was busy doing things. I've, I just remembered I've got to talk to the record company and see actually if they have got it uh, moving around in America because. Um, I think it sh- it would work there very well, um, but it's been it's been very well received, eight and I and uh, so you know and I play the songs at concerts and it seems to go they seem to go down very well, um, but then you know I've got I've got seventy odd songs of my own out there now and then you know sixty or seventy songs of Dire Straits you've got one hundred and forty songs to choose from it's like. Oh my God! Where do we start? And I think <laughs> if I have a problem, what does have Bob Dylan have as a problem? You know, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And you, the, the record came out; did fantastically well. You mentioned the concerts, and you did uh, a small tour of the UK, didn't you? So uh, you, you mentioned yeah. America as well. So is that something you'd, you'd love to do? Go over to America and play some some shows over there? Well, I'd, I'd love to. I just uh, you, these days it's a question of finding the right promoter, uh, somebody who wants to entertain the idea. Um, it's a lot of work to get these things together now because there's a lot of bands out there playing. A lot of venues are, are, are booked up well in advance. One has to plan way ahead, and we are we're constantly we are now planning to try and do something in Europe next year, and um, uh, hopefully in Australia and New Zealand. Wow. Uh, so we're looking into that. Uh, so you know, I, I think yeah, I, I love touring. I, I love performing, and I really enjoy the. As you know, we've talked about it before. That sort of relationship between the audience and the and the band, and I've got some great players, and uh, you know, we we work very well together. So it's a, it's a real pleasure still to do it. Definitely, that's that's the main thing. And just mentioning eight and the success of it so far. Is there, have you been working on any new music with prospects for a forthcoming record? Oh well, that's always a bit of a, a, a difficult question to answer because I'm, I'm I'm really still mystified actually how I ever get any albums together at all. But um, and I don't know I don't know how other people write. I hear various versions of 
of, of the approach to writing, but it, it's it's not it's difficult. It gets more difficult, um, you know, coming up with something interesting, principally for oneself before you actually start showing it to anybody else. I think that's the key. And you know, yes, one comes up with lots of ideas, and you know, some things work and some things get put away for later. And I have the iPhone ready with me all the time. If I'm strumming the guitar, I might come across a few nice chord changes that are going to work somehow. So it's it's as I said this before, it's a sort of massive jigsaw puzzle of of words and ideas I put down in a book. Uh, you know, every now and again I pick the book up and I write things down and. Um, I think everybody does that, really. And then somehow, somehow, rather, it's a bit of a mystery, a bit of a fascinating thing, but somehow, rather, uh, something comes out of all that. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I don't really, it's still a, it's still a mystery. There was a very interesting uh, little snippet on um, social media the day with Bob Dylan talking about very early days of when he was writing. I don't know whether you saw it. No, I've not seen that, no. But it's very interesting because he was asked, you know, about those early days when he first started to put songs together. And he, he just said, I have no idea at all how that happened. I have, just have no idea. I, I, I just can't imagine how all that stuff came together. I said, I, I just don't do it like that anymore. I, I, I don't know where they came from, those songs. I have no idea. You know, and no. he said, but, but then you go and pick up rough and rowdy ways and it's it's a wonderful bit of music and a bit wonderful bit of writing so you know everybody has a sort of different way of uh, looking at their work and um he's had he's had plenty of work <laughs> he certainly has, hasn't he? He certainly has indeed. And and so have Dire Straits. And that's the reason what we're talking today. It's a, a new little series we've got called My Five Favourite. And John, you've agreed to to list your five favourite Dire Straits songs. Now, as you said, it's not an easy thing to do. There's, there's certainly a load of songs that you guys have worked on over the years and you've played most of them live. And, and they, they resonate so much with fans and the audiences, both young and old as well. So these songs are personal to you. These are your choices, your, your collection of, of tracks that, that mean something to you and and really stand out amongst the Dire Straits collection. So let's start with with number one. What was the first song you, you chose from from your five? I, I think it was Wild West End. For me, it was um, uh, a recollection of that time when Mark and I were hanging out a lot, uh, um, not only at the flat musically working things out and he was writing and all this, but we used to make regular visits up to the, uh, to the West end to, um, you know, Soho and Soho in 1976 was a little different than it is now. Um, you know, it was a bit more edgy. There was a lot of, uh, you know, um, sort of clubs and, um, you know, uh, sort of strip joints and stuff like that. And so we used to go up there and, because we enjoyed that edginess of the place, but also because there were some wonderful guitar shops up there where we could uh, drool in the windows at things that we couldn't possibly afford. And so we used to go up there and have a have a bowl of pasta at, uh, you know, um, the Barocco Bar and go and get coffee from Angelucci's. And, and it, it's a lovely memory for me of that that beginning of Mark and, Mark and I's friendship, I think, really. So... I've always had a very soft spot for it. In fact, absolutely, I'm going to play to the gig in two weeks' time. Um, 
because it brings back a, a really lovely memory of that relationship with him developing and um and it stood the test of time so uh, that's the reason i've chosen that one and it's it's a Mark's obviously a wonderful storyteller and he paints pictures with his words. And this is a, a really good early example of that, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think storytelling is the essence of good songwriting, unless you just want to sing about love and hate <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, that kind of personal, really personal stuff. I, and this is a personal thing, but it's telling a story about, you know, build, yes, building a picture of, of, a, of a time. Yeah. Uh, and that's a that's a, a very good craft. So I mean, I've I you know I've, I've learned a lot from his writing, and um, I mean, long way back, for instance, from the new album is painting a picture of when we first went to LA. So I understand that way that that approach to uh, trying to communicate something to somebody else, you know, in in, in a unique way. So it's it's a talent, but it's something that I think you one can learn you know, over a period of time. So Wild West End is, you know, an example, a perfect example of very early storytelling. Well, actually, if you listen to the whole first album, it's it's about, it's a story. I think that's probably why people tend to sort of latch onto that as being, because it is, I don't really think about it in these are the terms, but people say to me, well, that really is the seminal kind of dire straits record because it, it at the very beginning it showed the sort of um the energy that the band had so wild west end that was the first choice uh your second choice is another one off that uh, debut album as well isn't it six blade knife isn't it that's yeah. the one yep <laughs> well it's interesting you see there's a there's a thing you know the six blade knife is a swiss army knife as you probably know which has got all the necessary things on it the most necessary one of course being a corkscrew to open a <laughs> bottle of wine and and a little thing that takes the cap off a you know off a tin uh it does a feast of things the six blade knife so i've got two or three of them actually um quite old ones because i've I had one very early and i think mark bought me one uh in in that first time and so here's another example of using uh, an article like that and and then you know relating it to a relationship uh you know you take away uh you take away the like you take away my heart like you take away the top of a tin you know something i can't remember the exact words now of course i've forgotten them naturally <laughs> um, but you know the a synonymous sort of idea about a, a relationship and uh, and a tool so it, it's very clever and i've always loved the really the simplicity of it is so easy. And it, funny enough, it's my daughter, Dee Dee's, one of her favorite Dire Straits songs. She plays it constantly, even though she listens to music all the time. Every time she comes to the house, she, I can hear it in her room just playing. Yep. Um, it sort of plods along rather nicely, but it's just a very sweet and sort of simple way of expressing an idea. Yeah, I like that because it is. It's it's a rather uh, sparse song. It, it proves that you don't have to overplay. It, it just kind of fills nicely and and rolls nicely. It's a bit like it always reminds me of Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. That kind of thing. That kind of rolling yes. beats and yes. things. And yeah, definitely. Well, I think you've just you've touched on a on something there. I think the the early feeling of the band was on that simplicity. What you can do with two guitars and a bass and a drum kit. 
Uh, and if you can make that work, well, actually, a good song should be able to play. You can play it on acoustic guitar, but you know, when you've when you've just got a four piece, you have to. Uh, everything's a bit simpler. There were very, very few overdubs on that first record. Mm. Yeah, and most of it was played live, and um, just with you know, obviously the vocals were done afterwards, and the car harmonies and stuff like that, and a bit of tidying up, bit of lead guitar work, but principally, you know. Um, yeah, it was very, very simple. Yeah. And two songs you've picked from your, your top five that have come from that um, first record. Yeah. It's a silly question, but obviously it's something that you look back on fondly. Uh, very much so. I think, it, well, it was the first time we'd actually ever been in a grown-up studio. Pathway no, was very small. <laughs> pathways, well, they're so small, you can only get two people in the in the, uh, in the the mixing room, you know, the recording. Uh, um Yes, it, it was, you know, it was, it was wonderful studio, Basing Street, just off Portobello. Um, and, um, yes, I think that uh, just being together in a, in a place where you could really hear what you were doing, uh, the sound coming back from you seemed to be better than the sound you were making, if you like, <laughs> because the equipment, it was very top drawer. And, and, of course, Muff Winwood did a wonderful job of producing it and, Brett Davis, a great engineer. We we had a we had a very good team, and they basically Muff Winwood would say to us, "Right, guys, I can hear how simply you play. Please don't overcomplicate it right now. Just keep it really simple." And uh, and that's so that's what we did, and that's what the album is. It's very it's a very simple uh, uh, acknowledgement of where we were at that particular time in 1977. Fantastic. Right, we're going to jump through a couple of uh, records now and go to Making Movies for your third choice. And this one was was a big hit. It was a top 10 single in the UK. And you talk about simplicity. It is another kind of stripped back song, but it is very complex in its in its playing and wordplay as well. It's a, it's a great song. So, so what is choice number three then, John? Well, Romeo and Juliet. Um, uh, and I chose this really because you're right. It's it's It seems on the surface to be a very simple um simple song but in fact actually i've played it with quite a few people and now in my band i've got people who really understand how it works mm-hmm. uh, so it's got a lot of subtleties in there which are not obvious at any one time to a lot of people who hear it and tend to miss the dynamic the very subtle dynamic in that song and and of course it's a love song and it's a frustrating love song. And, um, I, I, I don't, I don't even know. And I don't really want to think about what Mark was going through at that particular point in time. And it might've been a reflection of where he was at. I knew him pretty well, but I didn't know everything. And, uh, so I would imagine it was either fictitious or with a bit of, uh, you know, personal, um, personal history there. Uh, it doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is, it's uh, you know, as soon as people hear that song, I can hear a sort of murmur in the audience, and they go, "Oh yes, we really want to hear this." And uh, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a w- wonderful piece of work, even though I say it myself. Um, <laughs> the, um, and I just I adore playing it. I adore I adore singing it. And I've got a lovely girl in the band called Hannah Robinson, who is a singer-songwriter in her, in her own right, and she will be known at some point. And I get her to sing the second verse. 
And everybody afterwards says, oh, that girl of yours, she's got a fantastic voice. And I think, (laughs) yes, she has. She's the only one in the the band with a fantastic voice. (laughs) Um, And they really pick it out because she sings it with such tenderness. Um, And I recommend that to anybody if they've got a girl in their their band to let them sing the second verse. But anyway, yes, it's a a wonderful song. And I heard, I remember the very first, first time that I heard it, Mark came to my place in Forest Hill, a uh, house in Forest Hill. I bought, and I was, we, and he he bought his National Steel guitar around, and he tuned it in a very strange way. And everybody knows who's tried to play that song will know that the tuning is interesting, and actually, it's actually quite a difficult thing to play. Yeah, for any guitar player, and a lot of them just give up. It's a very very interesting piece of guitar playing. Which, when you see Mark playing it, it looks like it's water off a duck's back. But in fact, actually, it's very tricky. And a lot of people have been defeated by it, dare I say. But he came and he played the very, very raw version of that to me. And I just looked at him and I said, that's just fantastic. That is one of the best things I think I've heard you uh, you make, mate. That's, that's just wonderful. That's going to be so great to record. And I was right. It, you know, it was. It, it really. It's meant a lot of a lot to a lot of people. I think yeah. somebody said one day, "I wonder how many babies have been born or created from Romeo and Juliet." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving right along, yeah, we will uh, leave that one there. Uh, just quickly discussing the period around that. Then, obviously, it was a period of change because David left during the making of the, that record, and and um, Hal and Alan Clark joined for for the tour and things like that. The band was evolving; it was changing. How was how was the feeling within the group at this stage then? Because obviously, you'd had success from the previous records, and this was another great album you just recorded so how was the how was the feeling within the group with with the dynamics changing well it's a it's a it's a sad thing but the, you know dynamics in bands do change and uh, you know it's it's very rare for a band to start off as a four piece and end as a four piece um it was a very difficult time uh i dealt with it in the book in the best way i could because i you know I, I was very friendly with david and obviously mark was a very, my great mate and so it was very difficult to deal with that situation um uh in many ways um but uh in a sense the band really didn't have any alternative the only way that the band was going to move forward and and do what it could really do which we you know uh, we did uh was by uh, unfortunately david leaving and and uh, it was a very sad day for me a sad day for mark as well that that didn't work out uh but you know that's life and you know sometimes it's it's uh you know it happens these things it certainly do right let's go on to choice four then and this this certainly is an epic we're going to love over gold now yes uh this was quite a quite a song to um to get together uh going back to the making movies uh time when we toured making movies we actually during the sound check of uh, making movies we um you know we we actually spent the time getting a telegraph road together it's obviously a lot of piano work with alan clark and, and mark together and then getting all those different dynamics um in 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 the music because it's obviously we know it's very long and it's 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 there again it's another it's a story you know we're telling a story about that you know that road in america <laughs> i think it was uh, in in uh, around detroit or something uh, i can't remember exactly yeah i think you're right yeah uh, 
I think the idea came from idea maybe originally came from a book, but I don't know. But anyway, so he, you know, he developed this whole kind of nature, this, this idea of the growth of America on this long road and the telegraph road and all the rest of it. And uh, wonderful, yet again, another wonderful piece of writing. And, and, uh, it took a long time to get that together, but we used the sound checks, as I say, in, on the Making Movies tour, partly to stop ourselves getting bored, but because we needed to get this this song and a few other songs together for the next record, because at that time, the work intensity was was phenomenal. We didn't really stop at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you toured and you you then you went almost, you took a couple of weeks off and then, or three, and then you went straight into recording again, and then you organised the next tour and and so on and so on and so on. So this was, you know, we had to work on these songs uh, while we were on the road. So when we got to the power station in New York, New York, we were ready to put that song down. And you know, recording a fourteen-minute song, let me tell you, in one crack is is quite quite an experience. Yeah. Absolutely. And in terms of the, the last four or five minutes then, I mean, what, how is that as a musician when you're on stage and you, you've, you've gone through nine, 10 minutes of the song and you get to this last four or five minutes and it really is a big jam. It must be really fun as a musician to, to, to feel that energy and, and really get to play that last bit. Oh my God. I mean, I used to look forward to that every single night and I think we captured it on alchemy. Yeah. Um, I think that was quite a that was the band was really hot at that particular point in time on that alchemy tour and uh well i think there was a yes it was the making movies tour um and yeah that version i think of telegraph is pretty phenomenal i mean you're quite right towards the end when it starts to really motor you know after that you (laughs) you you had to play something a bit quieter and a bit slower. <laughs> but I absolutely, I used to look forward to that every night, and especially at the end when we started building the thing up and it just gets more and more and you think, and Mark's guitar playing at that particular moment was was just quite phenomenal. I mean, I look back on it now and I think, oh my God, I, I, sometimes you get so used to things happening. But when I go back and listen to that, I'm thinking, it's just phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal guitar playing. Quite extraordinary. Every single night, this musicianship of unparalleled energy, really. Uh, And that's why people used to come and watch the band playing live, because it was bloody good. (laughs) It certainly was. It certainly was. was. You know, we prided ourselves on doing good concerts and, you know, satisfying a lot of eager ears <laughs> <laughs> you certainly did that and you mentioned yes, that after playing that song that you had to play something a little bit quieter and that's moving us on to, to choice number five now um i spoke to you i think it was maybe three or four years ago now and i pinned you down to your favorite dire Straits song and it's it's no surprise that this one uh, made the list you, you said it was an almost perfect song that that mark had written so you, you, your choice for, for number five comes from the brothers in arms album Yes, well, I, I think that most Dire Straits uh, uh, aficionados would rank this pretty high. Um, Brothers in Arms is a uh, uh, an attempt to, if you like, uh, open people's eyes and minds to the frustrations and horrors of, uh, you know, conflict. Uh, and how we try and deal with it 
I mean, we're in one right now, although it's now sort of on the second page of the bloody telegraph or something. You know, this business of people just disagree about things and 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 start hurting each other. And uh, I, I find I still find it really difficult to comprehend that we haven't really moved on very much over the centuries. There's, there's still megalomaniacs and idiots who think they can change the world to the better and it basically makes it worse, essentially. Um, so Brothers in Arms, it, it, I find it, I always find it very emotional to play it. Even now I've played it thousands and thousands of times and I make no excuse for, I, the other day I finished off a concert with it and um, yeah, it it and it's a, it's an interesting thing when because most people finish a concert and I often do with something hard and fast and you know so everybody's on their feet with their hands in the air and I think I made no apologies I said I'm going to finish this concert with this song because I think it still has resonance and an important sort of uh, message to the to the world still I think it will forever yeah dare I say I think it's you know there are some artworks that are on the wall that you know, people recognize as being significant uh, aspects of um, human integrity. And I think Brothers in Arms fits into that with, you know, in the in the musical world. And how soon into the recording of, of the entire record was it decided that, um, that that song and the title itself stood out so much that it had to be the, the name of the record itself? I think it was pretty obvious right from the start, actually. You know, um, because in a sense, brothers in arms is a is a is a term, a colloquial term for people being together, and it, you don't not particularly in conflict. But um, I, I I do know that it's a, it's the signature tune of the armed forces when they're away. I mean, they they play it a lot, and I've had messages, and I, I suspect Mark has too from a lot of ex-army guys. I mean, I've had a ride back in a taxi the other day in London, and he was talking about this that his when his time in Iraq and all the rest of it and there he is driving a cab and he said you know I said did you ever listen to music I thought I'll just tease him a bit I said did you ever listen to music while you're over there and he said well yes I mean we listened to Brothers in Arms a lot because it meant so much to us at that particular time where we were and I said well I played the bass on that and he almost jammed his foot on the brake to you know um and we had a little chat about that. And, um, yeah, it was quite an emotional moment, actually, hearing his stories of being over there and leaving his family at home and the danger he was in and all the rest of it. I mean, I really felt for him. And But then that song, you know, resonated with him. I can relate to that. My, my father went to the Iraq War as well. He was in the Army. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. In terms of the, the record itself, it was recorded um, in Montserrat, wasn't it? Out in the Caribbean, you told me before the stories about that yeah. and all sort of stuff. But in terms of this track itself, um, you were recording digitally at this point. It was a very new technology. And did that help with this, this track, especially with the, the, the eerie buildup and everything at the start? I think that um, whether it would be digital or analog, I wouldn't I think it would have made much difference, actually, to be honest. Um we were experimenting with digital recording, uh, which was very, very new at that particular point in time. So we weren't really 
Um, and then we got a, a dodgy bit of uh, batch of tape uh, at one moment, so which was very awkward because it, we lost a lot of uh, the initial parts of the recordings at one time. So, you know, it wasn't perfect. Now, obviously, it's just it's all logic and computers and all the rest of it. There's, there's no tape anywhere, but this was digital tape, which you, you could record about 150 tracks on, and it was you know quarter of an inch or something. Uh, so anyway, I think I think the, yes, we were experimenting a lot with that record, digitally recording it, and um, uh, you know going to Montserrat was was a wonderful experience. Obviously, sadly, it's no longer there um, because of the hurricane and the volcano and everything else. Uh, just about everything thrown at it. But um, so um, uh, yes, I mean, and then finished we finished it off in. In the power station in New York, um, uh, again, and um, yes, I mean, I think the sound of it is pretty, I mean, we spent a lot of time trying to get the sound right on that record, and thankfully we had great engineers and a good, a good, you know, good, we, we spent a lot of time on it. I think that we knew when we were putting the songs together that we had to get this one right, because we... You know, we had four albums out, and they'd all been pretty successful, actually. And then, um, so we had an audience out there. So I think that, you know, there was an interesting group of songs on there. I mean, some people say, well, there was a pop song on there as well, which was Walk of Life, of course. Uh, and uh, there was a debate at one point whether we put Walk of Life on their record. Yeah. And, I, and I, I put my hand up and said, look, it's an antidote to, you know, Brothers in Arms and and all the other serious stuff on there. And this, and, and I think that, you know, it would really show the level and the depth of uh, what we can do. So, it, and there was, there was a, a general agreement. I think one of the engineers said, Oh no, you can't possibly put that on there because it's not serious enough and all the rest of it. Well, <laughs> what did he know? Um, exactly. anyway, um, you have to take chances in this life. You do indeed. Well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to to your choices and the reasons behind them. Absolutely fascinating to to hear some of the stories behind these great songs. And just a quick recap: there's Brothers in Arms, Telegraph Road, Romeo and Juliet. We've got Six Blade Knife and Wild West End in there as well. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. Nice to talk to you again. There you go, the brilliant John Ilsley there, a fascinating dive into the band's catalogue and some really interesting choices and reasons for choosing them too. I have a few more stars who recorded their five favourites, which will be available in the coming weeks, along with so many other big-name guests as well. Anyway, that's it for me and this week's show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe on your podcast app so you get all the episodes. They come out every Monday. Please leave a five-star review on the podcast app that you use. It makes a big difference. It really does. Check out the YouTube channel as well. So many brilliant videos on there. Loads of people following on the channel. But that's it for me then on this week's episode. I'll be back next week, of course, with another big-name classic rock star for you. So until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.